Recently, I had to apologize to a good friend of mine. And I had to apologize for not being a very good friend. He had been going through a difficult time. He had actually been enduring a firestorm where he worked and his career and his life. A very stressful time, very, very difficult, dark time. And I was aware he was going through it. But in that time, I never reached out to him. Even though I heard through the grapevine what was going on, I never so much as sent him a text saying I was praying for him. I never called him and said, hey, how you doing? Hang in there. For whatever reason, I I just never connected with him when he was going through this difficult time. And, And so eventually it turned out he called me first to catch up with my life and to see how I'm doing. And the guilt just felt overwhelming. And I I felt so wrong. And, And I had to say, hey, I knew what you were going through and I never reached out. I'm really sorry. I was a bad friend. And uh, he was forgiving and understanding. And in in fact, he said that he didn't give it a second's thought, you know, and hopefully that was true. But nevertheless, I felt like I had really let him down as a friend. Sadly, sometimes I feel the same way when it comes to my relationship with God. There's quite a few times in my life where I feel like I haven't been a very good friend to him. And sometimes I don't know what to do with that. I don't stay connected with him the way I should. I don't spend time with him the way I should. I don't talk to him the way that I should. Uh, Recently, uh, just a couple of weeks ago, I was going to bed at night. I was laying there in bed before I drifted off to sleep. And the thought occurred to me, I had gone the entire day and I couldn't remember praying even once. Now you're thinking, Dave, we thought you were a pastor. Long before I was a pastor, I was just a dude, okay? <laughs> I've been a dude much longer than I've been a pastor. And so the truth is, some days are like that, where I'm so preoccupied and so self-absorbed and so busy that I can go an entire day without talking to God. And that shocks me that I still have that uh, capacity to do that to him. In a recent meeting, I was with uh, Adam. And Pastor Adam and I were, were, were sketching out some of the upcoming services, doing some service planning. And about 10 minutes into it, Adam stopped me and said, hey, Dave, why don't we take a few moments to pray about this? I was like, oh yeah, I meant to do that. (laughs) I kind of forgot. He kind of shocked me back in the reality. And we're like, yeah, so we took a few moments to pray. But I was like, who sits down to plan worship without first praying and asking God to, but again, you know, it's just that I feel like sometimes I'm not a good friend. Do you ever feel that way with God? Do you always kind of surprise yourself at what a bad friend you can be to God? Hopefully, you can relate to that a little bit. I want to talk this morning about what we can do to be better friends to God. What we can do to increase our capacity to love him the way that we should. When you think about 
increasing our ability or our capacity to love God. If you want, instead of that word love God, you can insert the word our allegiance to God or our commitment to God or our loyalty to God. They're all basically the same concepts, right? But I want to think about what we can do to address this. And the good news is God's word is essentially a guidebook for how to really nurture and develop our relationship with him. And so in our time together, I want to look at four key practices for you and I to engage in that can increase our capacity to love him. Now these four practices, you're probably engaged in them already. Most of you are probably engaged in these practices already. So you're probably not going to learn anything new right? But these are the basics. These are like the fundamentals in a relationship with God that we've got to pay attention to in our lives and continue to develop in order to be a better friend to God. So let's check them out together, all right? The first key practice I want to talk about is the importance of corporate and private worship. Two parts to this, corporate worship. That means corporate as in body, the faith community coming together. That's what you're here for now. That's why you're here. Public worship, coming together for corporate worship on Sunday mornings, important. But also, it doesn't end there, but also our private worship. If the only time you worship during the week is an hour on Sunday mornings, I wanna suggest that's highly deficient that God is asking us to live lives of worship. And a habit that we should all be developing is to worship him on our own, not just when we're in church. Now, what does this look like to worship God privately? Well, it probably involves God's word, getting into that. It probably involves prayer. It involves thinking about him. It probably, it could include uh, uh, singing, whether out loud or to yourself. You could be jamming out and, and singing out loud and dancing and all lively, or you could be very quiet and solemn. You could be taking a walk outside, or you could be sitting in the easy chair in your living room. Uh, a lot of different ways you can worship God, but it's that time where you and God engage one-on-one, and you're giving him his worth. You're praising him. This is all over the scriptures. Check out Psalm 89, verse 15. It says, happy are those who hear the joyful call to worship, for they will walk in the light of your presence, Lord. You know why worshiping people are happy people? That when people respond to the call to worship, they're happy? It's because that's what you were created for. That God has created each one of us for the express purpose of worshiping him. And so when we choose to respond to the call to worship, whether publicly or privately, it feels awesome. Because we're creating, we're we're fulfilling the very essence of our being. We're fulfilling the reason why we were created. And so I want to encourage you, respond to the call to worship, both publicly and privately. Give God his due. Psalm 95, verse 6 says, Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. Those positions of worship, 
I don't know, physically, literally, maybe not very often do you bow down. Maybe not very often do you get on your knees. And that's really not a bad idea to practice those positions of worship. To lay before him, to literally get on your knees. But even if you don't do it literally, physically, there's that spiritual, emotional, metaphorical sense in which we bow before him. We submit our lives to him. That we acknowledge that we're not God, but he is, and we give him his due. That's what it means, okay? Now let me give you a pro tip regarding worship, okay? Here it is. The pro tip is come to be a blessing, not to get a blessing. This is super important. That when you come for public worship especially, the idea is you need to come to be a blessing and not get a blessing. I want to suggest to you that many people come to church with a consumer's mindset. And so as they pull in the parking lot, they're thinking, boy, when I hit that front door, there better be a friendly greeter there and they better make me feel warm and all fuzzy. And that coffee better be strong enough and hot enough. And the music better be just right. They better play my favorite songs. And it better not be too loud or too soft. It better be just right. It needs to be my favorite songs. And Dave, he needs to be funny. He needs to be interesting. He needs to be biblical. Now that's a given. That's the one you don't have to worry about most weeks, right? (laughs) So about half of you are looking at me like, is he serious? Is he really that arrogant? I was being funny, okay? But you see, when we come to church with like a list of expectations, like this better be like this, this better be like that, I better be blessed, I better have a favorite part of whatever takes place, I better leave here feeling better. It's a consumer's mindset where we come demanding things and it's all about us. And folks, I can't think of more antithetical attitude entering worship than thinking it's all about you. And you see, if you come with the proper mindset to worship on Sunday mornings, you come with this thought in mind. What can I do to be a blessing? What can I do to bless God? That when we come together to worship, it's not primarily about us being blessed, but you and I blessing God, putting a smile on his face by the way we sing, by the way we pray, by the way we submit ourselves to listen to his word, by the way we fellowship with each other. Does that make sense? That's a totally different mindset. And that's the way we're to approach worship is seeking to be a blessing rather than receive a blessing. Now, here's the ironic thing. If we approach worship with that mindset, we'll get our socks blown off with blessings. That the desire you have to be blessed will be fulfilled once you get the order straight and you seek to be a blessing First, And so I want to challenge you to approach Sunday mornings with that kind of mindset. Second practice for developing our capacity to love God is what I would call a prayerful dependence. Everybody in this room knows that prayer is talking to God, right? And when we pray what we think of most often is that we come to God with our requests, the things that are worrying us, the things that are making us fearful, the things that are stressing us out, uh, various physical needs we might have, and that's all right and good, right? Prayer is definitely for that. 
But I know I've thought this before. Have you ever wondered, why do we have to bother praying and telling God what we need when he already knows? Have you ever thought that's kind of dumb? I know I have. It's like God knows everything. He knows what I need even before I ask him. So why am I required to pray? Can't I just live life and God's looking down and he sees what Dave Corlew needs and he can just meet my needs? And why do I have to pray? He knows already. I'm telling him stuff he already knows. I'm convinced this is the reason why. The reason why God commands you and I to pray is because he wants to develop in each one of us a dependence upon him. Like a loving father wooing his children and teaching his children to look to him for their provision and look to him for strength and courage, God wants to train you and I to live our lives fully leaning into him that we're not depending upon our own strength or our own education or our own personalities or our own giftedness, but that in the way we live life, we're leaning fully into him, a prayerful dependence. That's what God wants from each one of us. You see, that's the essence of, of uh, what it means in 1 Thessalonians 5.17, where it says, never stop praying. Never stop praying. It's, it's not necessarily that we pray 24-7 like, like you know, we got our hands uh, like this and our eyes are closed, but it's the idea of a lifestyle, a prayer attitude, a prayerful dependence on him moment by moment where we're always looking to him. Thankfully, Jesus modeled this for us. You think if there's one person maybe who didn't need to have a prayerful dependence, it would be Jesus, because Jesus was God, Jesus was perfect. Why did he really need to lean into the Father? But he understood relationally that was what his Father was looking for. And so Jesus learned, leaned fully into the Father to live his life, and he modeled this for us. Let me give you a quick survey of a couple of verses that show this lifestyle that Jesus modeled for us. Uh, beginning of the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, it says in verse 35, before daybreak the next morning, Jesus got up and went out to an isolated place to pray. He so prioritized that time with his father, even though he was busy, he was like, hey, I'll get up before the sun gets up in order to spend time with my father. Mark 6, verse 46, after dealing with the crowds and telling everyone goodbye, he went up into the hills by himself to pray. Luke 5, verse 16, uh, Luke acknowledges this was a, a lifestyle habit of Jesus. He says, but Jesus often withdrew to the wilderness for prayer. Luke 6, when he was making the big decision about who his 12 disciples were going to be, it says then Jesus, uh, or one day soon afterward, Jesus went up on the mountain to pray, and he prayed to God all night. At daybreak, he called together all of his disciples and chose 12 of them to be his apostles. How did he choose the 12? Well, that big decision was prefaced by a night spent in prayer, looking to his father. On the eve of his crucifixion in Matthew 26, it says, then Jesus went with them to the olive grove called Gethsemane, and he said, sit here while I go over there to pray, looking to his father for strength, depending upon him to get him through the darkness that was in his immediate future. And then as he hung on the cross, his last earthly words upon his crucifixion, Jesus shouted, Father, I entrust my spirit into your 
hands. And so even with his last dying words, it was a prayer of dependence upon the Father. And so here's the pro tip for this practice. The pro tip is remember he is God and you are not. In other words, he is worthy of your trust, that Father knows best, and that he is in control and all-powerful and all-loving, and so go to him, lean into him, and you'll never be disappointed. God promises to always have your best interests in mind, and so we need to seek to be dependent on him. Third practice is this, to increase our capacity to love him. It's what I would call scripture saturation that a practice we each need to be engaged in is saturating our lives with scripture. And you're gonna notice as we talk about these four practices, they all overlap each other. They're all interconnected, and that's the way it should be. But the scripture saturation, uh, I wanna go back to a prayer that Jesus prayed for you and I. It's recorded in John 17, and he was specifically praying for us. His followers in coming generations. And this is what he prayed for, for you and I. Make them holy by your truth. Teach them your word, which is truth. Okay, so his prayer for us was that we would be holy. As it's used in that context, the word holy means to be set apart for God's use. And so what Jesus prays for each one of you is that your life would be set apart to glorify God, that your life would be set apart for God's special sacred use. Now, how does he do that? How does God set our lives apart to bring glory to him, to be used exclusively for him? Well, it says right there, make them holy by your truth, teach them your word, which is truth. And so that miracle of the process of you and I becoming worthwhile in God's kingdom and being used in God's kingdom is called sanctification. That's the theological word. And and that sanctification is a process that begins once we cross the line of faith. And the way that process is facilitated, where you and I are sanctified, where you and I are made holy, where you and I are set apart for God's use, is through exposure to the word of God. It's absolutely vital. It was part of Jesus' prayer. Matthew 4, verse 4, when Jesus was being tempted by Satan, he responded to Satan and he said this, No, the scriptures say people do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so we see what our sustenance is to be where our spiritual vitality and nutrition is to come from, is from the very words of God. And it's God's word that strengthens us and sustains us the way we need. Saturation strategies, read God's word, listen to God's word, memorize God's word, make it a daily part of your life. And I want to encourage you to take advantage of needed resources here. My, my experience has been this, that if a person doesn't have a specific game plan for reading the Bible, they won't read because it's too big of a book. You sit down, you're really not sure where to read. You thumb around a little bit and you set it down. You really don't get into it if you don't have a plan to work. Fortunately, there's a lot of great apps you can get on your phone, right, with all kinds of different Bible reading plans you can use. And so, you know, there's no excuse. We have a great resource at the Welcome Center. I don't know if you've ever used Today in the Word, 
but we get new ones of these every single month. And I'm using Today in the Word in the month of October here. And in the month of October, this booklet takes you through the book of Hebrews. And what's so cool about it is every day of the month, you just turn to the date. Today is October 14th. And boom, it tells you right where to read. It's got a little story to go along with it. It's perfect. It's a great plan. I want to encourage you, if you don't have a plan right now, if you're floundering a little bit, if you've gotten out of the habit, stop by the Welcome Center on your way out, ask for a Today in the Word. It's free, right? And you've got the game plan right there, all right? But you need to do that in order to be saturating your life with God's Word. Here's the pro tip regarding this practice. The pro tip is this. Some is better than none. Less is usually more. What I mean by some is better than none is that even if you just spend a couple minutes a day reading God's word, that's a lot better than no time a day reading God's word. And so don't make the mistake here of like feeling all guilty and stuff and thinking to yourself, oh yeah, I haven't been reading my Bible in a long time, but I'm going to make a commitment that I'm going to read it an hour a day, seven days a week for the next year. Now, it's not going to happen, all right? Highly, highly unlikely. Why don't you learn to walk before you run? And instead, just say, hey, I'm going to make a commitment that I'm going to take three minutes a day, five minutes a day to read the Bible. Before I leave for work, before I leave for school, before I eat my lunch, before I go to bed at night, wherever time you want to schedule it for, but doing that and seeing the difference it'll make. So some is better than none, folks, all right? And less is usually more. In other words, you don't get bonus points for reading 10 chapters. How about narrowing it down to one chapter? Or how about probably even better, narrowing it down to just a few sentences, a few verses, and think about them. Pray over them. Meditate on it. So you understand and remember what you're reading. There's no inherent blessing or value in reading a lot when you don't even remember what you've read and you didn't really think about it. It just runs off your back and it doesn't penetrate. Instead, just take a few verses, think about it, pray about it, and that less is usually more. All right, final practice to develop our capacity to love God is humble obedience. To be a follower of Jesus involves two basic things. To be a follower of Jesus involves trust and obedience. That's what it means to be a disciple. And so when we trust in Jesus, we trust him for our salvation, we enter into a relationship with him, and then we seek to trust him with our everyday life, and we look to him, we trust him. But an essential part of that faith or that trust is is obedience. Just flat out, God, what do you want me to do? And as we saturate our lives with God's word, it's like as we read it, we look for commands to obey. We look for examples to follow. We're anticipating lifestyle change. And true believers understand there are moral implications to being a Christian. You can't live your life like you've always lived it. 
and be a growing follower of Christ because growing followers of Christ are always morphing. They're always making adjustments. They're always becoming more obedient. They're always aligning more of their life in focus with the gospel and with what God wants from them. There's always room for growth. But obedience is an essential part of our walk with Christ. James made it clear in James 1 verse 22, but don't just listen to God's word. You must do what it says. Otherwise, you're only fooling yourselves. And so I think like, especially in a church like ours, we take a lot of um, pride sometimes in that we're people of the word, you know, and we own lots of different Bibles and aren't we holy, you know, and, 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 and we know the books of the Bible in order and we have a lot of head knowledge. We have a lot of Bible content knowledge. But James would say, you're missing the point. Who cares? If you're not doing it, you're deceiving yourselves if you think you're a person of the word, but you're not being actively obedient to it. That's why I appreciate how direct Jesus could be. And Jesus said in John 14, verse 15, if you love me, obey my commandments. It's that simple. That if you love Christ, you will be actively obedient to him and aligning your life with his values and his priorities. Pro tip is this. To develop this um, practice of humble obedience, discover what Jesus has done for you. Discover what Jesus has done for you. And as you learn the blessings you have in Christ, it'll bring a wellspring of gratefulness, of gratitude to you that overflows in just natural, willing obedience to him. I'll tell you where I got this. It's not not gonna be on the screen, but listen to what Romans 12 verse one says. It says, and so dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God. Other translations say, uh, give your life as a living sacrifice, but give your bodies to God. It's the picture of full commitment obedience. But look what it goes on to say. I plead with you to give your bodies to God. Why? Because of all he has done for you. You see, the basis of our obedience is the blessings we have in Christ and how he's provided for us and all he's done for us. And what Paul says to the Romans here is it's the only logical response. It's the only rational response to all that God has done for you. That if you really understand what he's done for you in Jesus, you're going to live for him. And so you need to be in the word to understand your blessings in Christ. You need to be reading in the New Testament and understanding what God has done for you because it's that knowledge that'll go from your head to your heart and cause obedience not to be like something you do out of duty or because you have to or whatever, but it'll, you'll be dying to be obedient. You'll want to express your love in tangible ways and you'll want to be more like Christ. And it won't be a chore. It won't be a burden. That's why in 1 John it says the commandments of the Lord aren't burdensome. The commands of scripture aren't a to-do list that's like a hassle and a, a bummer for us that we always have to worry about, but it's guidance for us to love God more and we're happy to do it. But it's because we understand how much he loves us and how much he's blessed us and we want to respond in some way. If 
if there's a spectrum, there's some who are here. And some who start at this end of the spectrum are those who are just now beginning to learn how to love God. And my friends, it's not natural for you and I to love God. It is natural for you and I to love ourselves. We are very good at that, right? It comes natural. But to love God, we've got to be taught how to do that. And so some of us are just learning how. And when you first start learning how, you can get discouraged because you can make so many mistakes and you can feel like you let God down so often. But you know what? You're a baby. Don't worry about it. Babies make all kinds of bad decisions. They poop their pants and they get food all over and they make all kinds of bad decisions, right? They put stuff in their mouth they shouldn't. But they're a baby. We understand that. They're doing their best, right? And so if you're just now learning how to love God, relax. God loves you. God's patient with you. He extends mercy towards you. You're learning. But you see, as you move along in your spiritual journey, over the years, over the months, you learn how to love God more and more. And you learn how to increase your capacity for loving him. And you keep growing in your love for God. And the thing is, you never get to this point where you have no more room for growth where you've maxed out your capacity to love him. We never get there. And so what that means, for those of you who have been Christians for decades, for those of you who've grown up in the church, for those of you who've walked with God for a long time, that's wonderful, but don't become complacent. Don't ever get to that point where you think, I've arrived or I can't possibly love God anymore because it's just not true. Each of us has an unlimited capacity to love God. And my friends, you need to know you can excel in loving God. It doesn't take a certain personality. It doesn't take a certain family background. It doesn't matter what's in your past. You have an unlimited capacity to love God when you submit your life to him. And so here's my challenge for you this week. Right now, where you sit, I want you to pick one of these four practices and say, that's going to be my focus for this week. That's the one where maybe I'm the most efficient. That's one where I sense I really need to work on that one in order to know God better and love him better. So would you look at him right now? And I want everyone in this room to pick one, okay? It could be the way you worship and the way you approach worship and doing private worship. It could be prayerful dependence. It could be the engagement with scripture and practicing scripture saturation. Or it could be as simple as just humble obedience. You know, there's areas in your life where there's compromise. And you're going to turn that around with his help. Bottom line is this, as your capacity to love God increases, your capacity to love others increases. And so you see, as you and I grow in our love for God, we will be a blessing to others. We will draw other people to him. And as a church, we'll be more effective in our outreach when we first get our act together as far as learning to love God more. And so I challenge you to pick one of these and see how God can help you develop it in the next week.